Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, tis good to be here, right? Tis true, tis true. It is good to be here this morning, God's house, with God's people. Maybe not with the voice that I was hoping to have, but to hear God's word and the comforting gospel proclaimed. Amen to that. But I have a feeling here uh, that we enjoy a certain comfort factor that Peter, James, and John sorely lacked up on that mount of transfiguration that we're looking at in our gospel lesson today. And it's not just because we have these really cushy, padded pews now that are so comfy, but it's really because those dazzling details that Mark records for us in chapter 9 of his gospel, which leads me to say, "'Tis good, Lord, to be here as opposed to there and be put through what that inner circle of our Lord's disciples went through. See, the title of that hymn, "'Tis Good, Lord, to Be Here,' it's based on a quote, and a quote uh, that was really put to some charitably good use that I might add. Way back in 1890, when that hymn was first penned by a rector in the Church of England, the hymn writer's name is Joseph Robinson, and he didn't write many hymns, but he did very consciously seek to add to the church's songbook an epiphany hymn. He didn't think we had enough of those, so that's why he wrote it. And I say it is charitably done, the hymn, because as we take a closer look at our gospel lesson, at where and why these words, "'Tis good to the Lord to be here,' why were they originally spoken by Peter on the so-called Mount of Transfiguration, which is somewhere desolate, somewhere high up near Galilee? Well, we soon discover that far from being a product of Peter's poetic meditation, these words are more born out of panic and not much poetic impulse at all, but it was impulsive on Peter's part. Our text in verse 6 pretty much says it. Rabbi, it's good to be here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Elijah, uh, and one for Moses. And then the text says, he said this because he did not know what to say. So uh, that's not usually the thing I want to say when I can't think of anything. But then it goes on to say that they were terrified. Terrified. So it's interesting to compare here the other synoptic gospel writers as Matthew and Luke add their own respective details of this very singular and unprecedented event. From Luke, for example, we learn that these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, were, quote, heavy with sleep. When they woke up, they first thought, probably not this, oh, the beatific vision, I've been wanting to see this. No, it's probably more like, this is a terribly realistic nightmare that I'm having. Matthew also employs the word terrified. He adds, and they all fell on their faces. It's pretty terrified. So neither Mark nor the other gospel writers explicitly state that all this took place at night, but because of the heavy sleep factor that Luke does include, most commentators agree 
a nocturnal supernatural encounter was likely the case, as if the light show would not have been bright and blinding enough already during the daytime, right? So what exactly did they see that had Peter scrambling and babbling? Well, one of the interesting details here that Mark includes is in the introductory statement right there in verse 2. Quote, and after six days. Six days? Well, that's an invitation to go on a Bible quest. I'm inclined to accept that challenge, that invite, and to bring you all along with me. But before we get to that specific within the six days quest, let's just first reestablish that in the Old Testament scriptures, which of course are the only scriptures that the disciples had at this point, these Old Testament scriptures are quite replete with example after example of God's people meeting their God Almighty on mountaintops. It's a regular thing. There's a definite pattern there as you go through the Old Testament. Starting in Genesis, Father Abraham was tested by God concerning the very frightening prospect of sacrificing his own dear son Isaac. And that was on Mount Moriah, which in over a millennium and a half from the time of Abraham to fast forward to Jerusalem, now you're talking about the Temple Mount. Mount Moriah with Abraham is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem at the time of our Lord. And it's just outside of that Temple Mount that God the Father will sacrifice his only son. But more on that crucial act a little bit later. Well, then in the very next book, the book of Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, there is, of course, Moses, who first meets Yahweh in the burning bush. Where? On Mount Horeb, a.k.a. Mount Sinai, where Moses will go on to have many fiery and flashy meetings with the Almighty on this Mount Sinai, including the time that Moses receives God's law written on two stone tablets by the very finger of God himself. Let's stay on this Mount Sinai mountaintop just a moment longer because in one such meeting between God and Moses on the same Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 24 describes this scene and see if this sounds familiar. Quote, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called Moses from within the cloud. So we kind of solved our little riddle on six days right there. It continues, though. To the Israelites, the glory, as they looked up onto the mountain, it was like a consuming fire. And then Moses entered the cloud, and he went up the mountain and stayed on that mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And that ends the reading there from Exodus 24. So, he who seeks finds, right? I believe on top of Mount Sinai, we found our six days that we were looking for, the one that Mark references back in our gospel lesson on the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark wants us to make that Moses connection, which, of course, is hard not to make, because it's made plain and simple by the fact that, yes, indeed, right there 
on the Mount of Transfiguration, Transfiguration rather, Moses himself shows up and there he is talking with Jesus. Wow. And everybody asks a good and fair question. Well, how do you even know that that's Moses? And when I hear that question, I always like to bounce it back to the inquirer, really because their guess is as good as mine. Mark simply does not supply those details to answer that explicit question. But it's a sort of a nice review, anyway, to run through some of the possible ways Moses was identifiable um, to the three, Peter, James, and John. And I mean, besides the standard jokes that they wore name tags or that they kept name dropping uh, until the groggy-eyed disciples were finally fully awake and caught on to what they're seeing. But I think there are better possibilities, aren't there? Was Moses, for example, still carrying those tablets of stone? Or did Moses' trusty staff give him away as to who he really was? Or maybe, as the book of Exodus also records, the face of Moses itself would shine after all the time that he'd spend in the glory cloud, in the very presence of God Almighty himself atop Mount Sinai. This afterglow, if you will, was still so bright that even after Moses climbed all the way down the mountain to return to the base camp of the wandering Israelites, the people begged Moses to wear a veil over his face until finally the shine wore off. So now here's something to think about. And maybe this will help us to be a little more charitable too with regard to Peter and what he was babbling on about, as well as the other disciples. And they were all so terribly frightened by this unreal scene that they beheld that night on the Mount Mount of Transfiguration. The thing is this, Moses only reflected the light of the Lord. And so the people of Israel were afraid enough just from that, and they were unable to bear what you might call the lunar or reflected light. Um, But on Mount Tabor, which some biblical scholars believe that was actually where the light show took place, the transfiguration. But there or wherever there was for Peter and the others, they were looking at or perhaps trying to look away from the face of Jesus. Jesus, who like the sun, is the source of pure light. He's not a mere reflection like the moon. Love's pure light from this Holy One, emanating radiant beams from heaven above. Only this was no silent night, especially with Peter there, understandably not knowing what to say to this amazing scene to which they all woke up. But you know, Peter's going to give it a shot to say something. You can always count on that. Somehow James and John, the so-called sons of thunder, they were able to let their mortal flesh keep silent. Perhaps they thought, we're not going to steal anybody's thunder on this mountain. We are way out of our league here. Well, we ask this about Moses, again, only as an exercise, because we don't know, and the text doesn't say exactly how they were recognized. I mean, it could have been just as simple as a Holy Spirit-supplied epiphany, because the Holy Spirit 
can and does do that, you know. But among the other possible ways to identify now that other big name prophet there on the Mount of Transfiguration, I'm talking about the prophet of God who never died, Elijah. What are some possible ways to make him out to who he really is? Well, for one, maybe his fiery chariot was parked nearby and it was revving up, getting ready to race him back to heaven once he came after he's done with his guest appearance here. Well, if I were there and were not scared speechless or caught frozen in the headlights of him who spoke into existence a zillion suns, brighter stars strewn across endless galaxies, if, and that's a big if, then I would have liked to hitch a little ride by um, Elijah's chariot. That would have been really cool. Just a short spin. But I'm sure like Peter, I don't know what I'm asking for either. Back to Elijah, we know from the biblical record that Elijah did have a signature look that he sported, right? A unique look that probably nobody else but John the Baptist could also make look fashionable. Yeah, I'm talking about camel fur and a leather belt. That could have been Elijah's giveaway. I can't recall now. Did Elijah also, like John the Baptist, eat locusts and honey? Because maybe Elijah was having a little unsightly snack there too. Well, one thing that both Elijah and Moses had in common, though, uh, is that Elijah himself also spent some significant time up on a high mountain or two, and also with fire. You recall that showdown, that famous showdown at the Mount Carmel pyre? And that was Elijah who taunted the prophets of Baal, the false god of those other inhabitants of Canaan, the Canaanites. Well, Elijah scored huge that day. You might call that his Super Bowl, Super Bowl of prophets. And it was a huge blowout, though, so it wasn't much of an exciting back-and-forth game. It was 450 to zero in favor of Elijah as he had 450 false prophets slain that day as a true day of victory for the true God of Israel. That was Mount Carmel. But Elijah, like Moses, also spent some significant time on Mount Sinai. There, Elijah, for example, hid out in a cave, hiding from the murderous threats of that evil Jezebel, right, who was after him. And it was uh, called quite often Mount Horeb in Elijah's time. And this is centuries, centuries after Moses died. So even though Moses died, there's something right there, too, that both Moses and Elijah had in common. And that is God miraculously and personally oversaw both of their last day on earth. Yes, Elijah was taken up in that fiery chariot, and he never died. Well, Moses did, but Moses was buried, it says, by God himself in some unmarked grave on yet another mountain, Mount Nebo. However, this mountain, Nebo, was still outside the promised land. And that promised land into which God had told Moses, Moses would not be allowed to enter. Moses knew he had sinned against God, 
and didn't fully trust his word when it came to providing all his grumbling people water from the rock in the desert wilderness, Moses was called the most humble man on earth. And that's probably because all that time he spent in the very presence of God. That's got to be humbling. We need to remember that there is only one God in the universe, and I am not it. Moses had that lesson, and he accepted his discipline with dignity from the hand of his loving God. But the interesting thing to complete the picture now is here. Here is Moses talking with Jesus, and Jesus is that other prophet Moses predicted that God would raise up from his own people a brother. This is a prophecy Moses made in the last book of the Torah, or Pentateuch. Way back in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, a prophet is to come. He is the one you need to listen to. That's what Moses told the people of Israel. And now from that cloud on the Mount Transfiguration, as witnessed by Jesus' own three disciples there, the Father once again spoke, just like the Father spoke at the beginning of Epiphany, the Epiphany season at Jesus' baptism. Here on this night, the Father's voice reaffirmed, quote, this is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. That's from verse 7 of our gospel reading. Well, this also reaffirmed what Moses had said some 1,400 years ago, or earlier, rather, in his prophecy concerning that other prophet. That other prophet was none other than the Son of Man, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, who this night revealed himself, manifested himself in this great epiphany, the culmination of the epiphany season on this mountaintop. So you talk about your mountaintop experience then, or in this case, Jesus instructed them, you don't talk about this mountaintop experience with anyone until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So Jesus is trying to impress upon them. It's so important to get the message right first before you go and attempt to get the message out. So don't say anything about this event. And Jesus had already been trying to get across to his followers about how God's Messiah must suffer and die at the hands of evil men, but on the third day be raised from the dead. But the disciples, like the rest of us, were hard of hearing at that time. And sometimes we only hear what we want to hear instead of what we need to hear. The disciples needed to hear the voice of God on that mountain that night. Why? Because their momentum on the way down from that mountain is going to take them all the way to Jerusalem, up another mount, Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. And it's going to take Jesus all the way to the cross. And he doesn't want his cross to be a stumbling block causing his beloved disciples to fall away, those who he instructed for the last three years. The transfiguration was necessary for them, as it is necessary for us to strengthen our faith in a big God, so big he can handle even death on the cross. And if Jesus, the God-man, can even come back from the dead, 
to pronounce his peace upon us, then as we do listen to his powerful, faith-strengthening word, we can believe also that his death was just what he was talking to Moses and Elijah about. They were talking about his death and his resurrection and how that can deliver God's people, everyone who has faith in the Son, from a greater enemy than Moses delivered the children of Israel from. We're talking about this Jesus, this prophet, priest, and king can deliver us from bondage to death and slavery to sin and from the tyranny of the devil. And furthermore, this prophet Jesus can grant us entrance into the land he acquires and promises to all who believe in him. And that is an everlasting kingdom where he and his father are the light because they are so bright there is no need for a sun and there is no darkness of night, only eternal joys for you and me and the blessedness of our eternal days with our Savior. Yes, Lord, it's very good to be here. Wherever your word and sacraments are, it is very good indeed. Amen. And now may he who began this good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.